We're going to talk today about trials and temptations, how the Lord leads us in the midst of that. And we're actually going to enter into a season pretty soon where we're going to be talking about the 23rd Psalm for an extended period of time, that about that idea that the Lord leading us through. And in the midst of all of that, whatever else we talk about today, and we're going to talk about some ways to handle that and see it and view it, the most important thing that we know from Scripture is that when we are the children of God, He is with us. No matter what you're going through today, no matter what situation is in your life, no matter what difficulty is there, no matter what good thing that has suddenly come into your life that you're figuring out how to handle, whatever it is in life that you are dealing with today, the Lord is with you. As a believer in Jesus, the Lord is with us. When I think about that Psalm 23, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What's the next phrase? Because you are with me. And so today we take great comfort in, no matter where we are in life, He is with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for today and the reality that you are with us regardless of what we're facing, what we're going through, what's happening in our lives, that you are with us. And so, Lord, today we pray that as we open your word and as we talk about how you grow us through circumstances in our lives, Lord, we pray that we would be open to hearing and to obeying whatever you call us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. And I want to start by asking uh, a couple of questions this morning. First question is, anybody here, how many of you here, I know we probably have some, anybody here speak more than one language? I'm raising my hand even though I don't. Anybody? We have anybody here? We got, well, we got somebody in the back. We got somebody back there, all right? More than one language. You know what they call someone that speaks uh, two languages, right? What are they? They're called bilingual, right? You know, somebody that speaks three languages, trilingual, multiple languages is multilingual. Do you know what they call somebody that speaks one language? American. That's what they call them. Now, that's not as true as it used to be. We're more of a multicultural kind of place. But I was looking this week and thinking about languages, and you'll understand why in just a moment, but... I saw some things about the hardest languages to learn, especially for American English speakers. You can imagine some of them are Mandarin and Arabic and Japanese. One of the ones that surprised me was Icelandic. Never really thought about learning that one. By the way, just as a side note, I thought it was interesting that the two most difficult languages for Western English, American English speakers to learn are the Spoke the languages most spoken by the unreached peoples in the world. In Mandarin and Arabic, more people that are unreached, not necessarily groups, because some of those groups have various languages, but the people that are unreached, the billions that are unreached, more of them speak Mandarin and Arabic than anything else. What you also may not realize is that as English speakers, People that don't speak English, that are learning English from other languages, say that our language is a very difficult language to learn. Because we have weird ways within the English language. In fact, I have a quote from the Oxford Royal Academy that says this. One of the reasons why English is known for being difficult is because it's full of contradictions. There is no ham in hamburger. 
neither is there any apple nor pine in pineapples. If teachers taught, why didn't preachers prompt? If a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? As the native speakers, we rarely stop to think about how illogical many of the things we say really are. We're just used to them. In fact, we have words in our English language that are spelled the same, said the same, but mean different things. We have words that can have multiple meanings that are not related to one another. So, for instance, like if I put up the word bark, what immediately comes to mind? Tree. Dog, right? How does the word that means the covering outside of a tree mean the same thing as the sound a dog makes? By the way, you might want to give me their best bark out there. All right, we got good. All right, good. It's good. All right, so bark is one of those words. Here's another word. Forward, right? Now, when you hear the word forward, most probably think of something like moving forward or what's forward, but... We also use it in different ways. For instance, there is the forward of a book that's spelled a little bit different, but forward also comes with, uh, which is just weird that it's spelled with it anyways. Forward also can mean like I'm playing power forward for the church basketball team. Now, English is not the only language that has that, and we're going somewhere with this, I promise. There is this word, parasmos. And all of God's people said, huh? Right? Parasmos is a word in Greek, the original language that the New Testament is written in. And it has two meanings that are different yet related and it's important. So, for instance, if I just put the word bark up there, you don't know whether I'm talking about a dog or a tree. You have to read the context around which it is to determine the meaning, right? Right? You with me? Parasmos can either mean trial or temptation. It can mean either something that's difficult you're going through, or it can mean a temptation to do evil. So a couple examples from Scripture for you. This is from the Lord's Prayer. And do not bring us into parasmos, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, obviously, we translate that as what? Do not lead us into temptation, right? But here's another use of the word. You know from the first day I set foot in Asia, this is Paul talking, how I was with you in the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the parasmos that came to me through the plots of the Jews. This obviously is not the temptation of the Jews because it's something the Jews were doing to him. So in this instance, we would say it is the trials, the difficulty, the circumstances in my life. You see the difference there? So today's passage, James chapter 1 says this. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various parasmos, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So in that setting, is it trial 
Or is it temptation? And what do we do with it regardless? We'll come back to that in a minute. We're at the end of a series of messages that we've called the Banzai Way. It comes from this ancient tradition. The name comes from the ancient tradition in Japanese culture of making little trees, of planting them in smaller planters and making them grow into what looks like miniature full-size trees. So they look like full-size trees. They're just tiny, smaller and the way that they do that is they feed them in a certain way. They, they prune them in a certain way. They cultivate them to become the tree that they envision in their mind. We talked the very first week about a scene in one of my favorite movies growing up, The Karate Kid, the original one from the 80s, where Mr. Miyagi is teaching Daniel LaRusso how to work with a bonsai tree. And he says to him, picture what you want it to look like, close your eyes, And then just start pruning, cutting, snipping. We've talked about over the last few weeks that God has a vision and an understanding of who you are and who you are to be. That God understands the end from the beginning and He knows what a glorified you looks like. What a completely saved you looks like. When I say completely saved, we've talked about the fact that our sins have been forgiven the moment we accept Christ. We are in the process of becoming like Christ. And at some point we will be glorified to be with Christ and we will be in our glorified, our ultimate state. And God knows what that ultimate state of you looks like. And he is taking the time in this life to mold you into that, to craft you into that, to move you into that. And so over the last four weeks, we've talked about the ways that God makes that happen. And so we've talked about four ways. First of all, we've talked about the applied word of God, that he uses his word, that he has spoken to us, that he has given to us, and he uses it when we live out what we know to be true. When we live out what God has called us to do, he causes us to become more like him. We talked about providential relationships. That God brings people into our lives. That God allows people into our lives. And that those relationships are meant to sharpen us, to build us, to help us to become the people that God has called us to be. We talked about the people that you can imagine in your life that have helped you along the way. But we also talked about the temptation that is there to allow people to influence us in ways away from the Lord. And that just as much as people can influence us towards the Lord, they can move us away. The quote that sticks out from that even is Andy Stanley's quote about the fact that he can tell you who you will be in five to ten years often by the company that you're keeping right now. And then also there's the spiritual disciplines, those inner things that you do at home, the prayer, the Bible reading, the, the, the disciplines that are public of going to church, of giving, of those things. God uses those to mold you and to make you. And then last week we talked about personal ministry, just giving to God what we have, giving Him whatever we have and trusting Him to move in our lives. And so this week we're going to talk about the last one. And this is not a comprehensive list, but this is the one that when I talk to people about their story, these are the five that come up. 
well, pastor, you know, I really wasn't living for the Lord. And then I heard a message or I went to a conference and God really spoke to me and I saw it in his word and I began to live out what it said and it changed me. Or pastor, I really was just kind of just kind of not living for the Lord at all. And then I met so and so and they showed me what it was like to live for the Lord and challenged me to do this. And I saw the Lord begin to work in my life or pastor. I was moving along, just doing kind of normal stuff. And I just began to read the Bible. I began to pray. I began to go to church. I began to give. I began to do the things that I knew I was supposed to. And God began to grow me. Pastor, I I just started to do the work that I knew I was supposed to do. Like I didn't feel like I was qualified. I didn't feel like I had enough. And yet God used me in a mighty way. And then this week, I was living my life. And then bang, something happened unexpectedly. Either good or bad or life-altering or life-changing. And as a result, my life has never been the same again. This week we're going to talk about the pivotal circumstances in our lives that change us into the people that God wants us to be if we respond to them the way that He calls us to respond. Pivotal circumstances. You have them in your life, important moments, dates, occurrences, seasons of your life that God worked in astounding ways and God used the situations that came into your life to change you. I've got my list. I made a partial list. Uh, I can put those lists up on the screen for you. It's just a list of dates. That God has shown me and used in my life. Now this isn't comprehensive. But it's a lot of the biggest moments for sure. And some of those dates you look at and you're like, that's that's awesome. I don't, they don't make anything to me. You may recognize some dates on there. But they all were there. And here's what pivotal circumstances I'm talking about. I'm talking about dates that were defining or difficult or challenging, or disruptive, or cataclytic, or defining in my life. Some of those were very, very good dates. If you saw those dates, we don't have to put them back up, but some of those were my wedding to Susan, the birth of my children, um, the day that I surrendered to ministry, the day that I gave my life to Jesus. But some of those are difficult dates on there. The day I was diagnosed with diabetes at 12 years old as type 1. Insulin dependent is on there. The death of loved ones is on there. There are conferences on there that I went to. Places where God changed me completely because of what happened. And you have your own list. These lists of moments in your life that are disruptive, that are cataclytic, that are defining. They're disruptive because they change. They're out of the ordinary. and may be good, may be bad, but something happens and your ordinary life for that moment is transformed and it's different. It's either more difficult or maybe it's more free or maybe it's, it's just more challenging or more responsibility. But something in your life is changing and it's disrupting 
the normalcy of what you're doing. There's a cataclytic thing. There's something about it that catalyzes you, that sends you forward, either in a positive or a negative direction, or it's defining about who you are, what you're becoming, what is happening in your life. And not all of these are put on a calendar once a year, big time moments. Sometimes they're a conversation that doesn't go the way that you intend it to. Or they're a, a, a joke that goes a little too far with someone else. Or someone speaks into your life and it is a positive thing or it is something negative. It could be uh, lots of different things happening in the midst of your day. But there's something about it that changes the trajectory of your life. And the question that we have to ask is if God uses pivotal circumstances in our lives, pivotal moments in our lives, how do we respond and recognize them when they come? Back to James chapter 1. James, in writing this letter that most people think is a sermon that he may have given or a group of sermons that he gave to the church in Jerusalem where James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a follower of Jesus until Jesus' resurrection, James, who had become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is an astonishing, astounding fact that James, who was not a believer until after the resurrection, becomes the one, not Peter, not, not um, Andrew, Not Matthew, none of those become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. It is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes this letter that is a very practical outline of how to live for the Lord. And he starts it by saying, consider it great joy. Some translations of that have pure joy, highest joy. Rejoice in it, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various parasmos, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So is that word there temptations or testing? The question becomes, what difference does it make? Well, here's the difference. Scripture makes it clear, and even James makes it clear in the verses that are to follow. Temptations, which are opportunities to choose something other than God, are not from God. God never tempts you. God never tries to get you or lays before you the option of doing something contrary to His will. He is not attempting to get you to go in a different direction. He is not tempting you to do evil. All temptation comes from the enemy of our souls, comes from the world system in which we live that is set against us. All temptation comes from somewhere other than God. Why trials, circumstances, difficulties are circumstances in our life that challenge us at some level, most times in difficult ways. And here's the difference when it comes to God. Scripture makes it clear that God definitely allows trials to come and sometimes tests us by allowing those trials or sending them into our lives. 
And so either way, it is something that is tempting us towards evil or it is something that is a test of God trying to see if we are willing to continue to follow him. So the question is, what is this word in this original passage? From my own understanding, I have come to understand that it means trials with a caveat. The idea behind it is that God is saying through James that we should be looking forward to and embracing the difficulties in our lives when they come. That we have to have an attitude about them that help us to understand how God can use them for the betterment of who we are. They can become opportunities for growth in perseverance and understanding how we can become, as it says in verse 4, that endurance, these trials and the testing of our faith, having its full effect, may make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. Becoming, if you will, that picture of the bonsai tree that God has in His mind for you and for me. And God can use those effectively in our lives. Here's how those two words are related, however. Here is the caveat. If we are not careful in our lives... Trials can become temptations when we do not handle them well. And so if something difficult comes into our lives, a diagnosis happens, a a friendship is severed, a, a setback at work, something is problematic in our own lives, a trial not of our own doing comes into our life. It's easy in those moments to suddenly become complaining and to get questioning about God and to resist God's will in that moment. And the moment we begin to resist God's will or to question God or to wonder if things are there, to begin to complain about the situation in life that we are in, when we begin complaining, we are moving towards the possibility that we're not going to handle the trial or the test in a way that is glorifying to God. And as a result, we are moving towards the place where we're being tempted to do evil. The enemy can take the situations of our lives and attempt us to do things that are against God's will. I was, uh, as a family, we were sitting around the other night and we were watching some stuff on TV, just kind of back and forth. And there was a clip on YouTube from the Christian artist Toby Mac. How many of you know Toby Mac, right? So I, I grew up with Toby Mac, was in a group called DC Talk. Um, he was the lead kind of of that group and has had a great, successful uh, contemporary Christian music career since then. On his early contemporary Christian music albums when he was solo, um, he had his son often rap with him and they called him True Dog. I mean, he was six, seven, eight years old. And about a year and a half or two years ago, his son, who was an aspiring artist on his own, was found dead from an accidental overdose not long after he played a show. And the interview was for Good Morning America with Toby Max getting ready to release a brand new album with music reflecting what's gone on in his life. An interviewer, a guy named Chris Connolly, asked him about how he handled the situation and what was there. And Toby Mack, in a very honest kind of moment, said that he definitely had feelings of question and complaint. But the first day, he said he probably 20 times said, are you serious? Are you, are you telling me the truth? This can't be real. 
And he said he kind of had a moment with the Lord when he just kind of said, Lord, you're going to have to prove yourself again. And he goes, I know that's not biblical and I know that's not right. But he kind of said, I'm giving you a chance, Lord. And he said, in the midst of that, even though I was tempted to go in a direction other than I had been going, thankfully the Lord showed up and has protected me through it. And he's grown in the midst of it. Sometimes people act like Christianity is a faith that doesn't know what to do with difficulty. Sometimes even Christians kind of have this attitude about life and that we think that if we're just living for the Lord, if we have enough faith, God will not bring anything bad into our lives. Nothing bad will happen into our lives. We won't experience all of these things that are bad in our lives. And let me just say, from a a biblical point of view, that is just absolute baloney. It's not true at all. In fact, it's as far from the truth as can be because the basis of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, who had no sin, took on the sin and had his life taken from him on our behalf. In fact, the essence of Christianity, if you want to get down to it, is is that we believe God did the worst thing possible to the best person possible. And so how can we assess our lives and think that we can not have any kind of difficulty come into our lives? The truth is, Jesus told us that when we follow him, we will experience trouble. A few months ago, Noah and I started a little podcast. Um, I think we have um, tens of listeners. It's awesome. Uh, we do have several, we, we, we kind of built a little base and we, we did eight episodes and we took a break and people are like, when are y'all coming back? And we are. And here's the thing, one of the things I love about Noah, we were talking about, Hey, this, this, this time we're going to do eight more episodes and we're going to interview people. And we just started dreaming about people to interview. And Noah's just like, I'll just ask them. And we did. And we, so we've done our first two interviews. The first episode will come out this week. And it's with the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Bart Barber, Dr. Barber. The other interview we did this week that will come out in a couple of weeks is with a guy named Nick Ripkin. Nick Ripkin wrote a book called The Insanity of God and has spent a good portion of his life in the most dangerous places on earth for Christians. And he said in that interview, one of the things he said is that the American church has been lied to. Because normalcy for following Christ is persecution. And we get upset when our 401k goes down. Today, or actually, for most of what is true, already a few hours ago, people all across this globe have met under the danger of their very life being taken for being a follower of Jesus. And so we shouldn't live our lives expecting not to have trials in the midst of it, having difficulty in the midst of it. The question is, how do we handle it when it comes? By the way, trials don't just come from negative stuff in our lives. 
Sometimes the most difficult challenges to pass are those when we've been given good things in our lives and we become self-reliant and self-satisfied and think we no longer need God or his assistance in our lives. And there's a lot of American Christianity that is stuck in that very place. And when that happens, we are tempted to walk away from the necessity of God in our lives. And we do it on our own by pulling up our own bootstraps and working hard at it and making it happen. The point James is making here is a couple of fold. First of all, it is that that we have to look at those and how we view those will make a difference in how we handle them. But part of what he's also saying here is that you don't really have faith. It's not faith until it's been tested. And all of us in our lives will have moments, pivotal circumstances, good and bad, when a difficulty will come, when a diagnosis will happen, when a loved one will pass away, when our own health will begin to fail or is failing, when our children will challenge us in some way, when we will be struggling with them as they're struggling with things. And we want to just take it on ourselves and we can't. And we have to walk with them through it. When our parents are experiencing things and we have to walk with them through it. When our friends and our family when our 401k does crash and the stock market goes down a thousand points in a day hypothetically speaking like that happens right and the question is in the midst of that how will we handle the test three things will determine how we handle the test So three things will determine whether we consider it great joy that when we too experience those various trials as in verse 3, that the testing produces endurance. And in verse 4, the endurance has its full effect, makes us mature and complete, lacking nothing. The three things that matter in those moments are what we believe, who we listen to, and how we frame what's going on. It's not truly faith until it's tested. What do you believe? What do we believe about the God that we serve? What do we believe about Him being with us? What do we believe about Him giving us through? About Him taking an opportunity to grow us into the people that He's called us to be? What do we believe about whether or not this, this world is the end of it or if there's something more than this? I just recently finished uh, listening to a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. And it's written by a refugee from Iran that was... Um, placed in Edmond, Oklahoma. And they were in Edmond, Oklahoma as refugees from Iran because his mom, who was um, royalty in the Islamic faith, was a Muslim royal bloodline on a visit to London converted to Christianity. Now, by the way, the writer of this, from what I can tell, is not a believer. But one of the things he's writing towards the end of the book is he has given all of these stories of what they endured in getting out of the country and getting to the country, what they endured in this country because they were refugees, what was done to them and about them here in this place. As he tells this whole story, he says, people ask me, why does my mom put up with all of that? And one of the things he does, and I'm I'm not going to give you the quote, but he basically says, when you have a hope, that is beyond this place, that is a place of perfection, and you believe that when you die, you go there, there is an infinite amount of stuff you can put up with now because of the eternity that awaits. There are two or three times in that book when this unbeliever, from all I can tell, 
has insights into the understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has called us to do and the reality of if there is a hope out there, what can we put up with now that just is mind-blowing to me from someone that doesn't believe? Because there are a lot of believers that don't even see that. So the question is, what do we believe? What do we believe about what is to come? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about Him being with us? What do we believe about what He went through? What do we believe in our faith? Who do we listen to? Do we listen to the Word of God? Or do we listen to the friends of Job? Y'all know the friends of Job, right? The guys that came along with Job when he was in the midst of his misery and gave the absolute worst advice possible. Just believe in yourself, Job. Well, maybe that's more today than then. There is not a lack of informational sources coming into our lives today. The question is, will we listen to the ones that are biblical and true and according to God's Word? And then the last one is important. How do we frame what we're going through? When these pivotal circumstances happen in our lives, how do we frame it? Do we ask, why me, God? Do we ask, why now, God? Or do we ask the question that helps us to move past whatever it is or move through whatever it is with God walking with us, the question is, God, what are you wanting to teach me and how are you wanting to shape me in the midst of this situation? I mentioned Nick Ripkin earlier, and we didn't even really talk about this in the interview, but one of the most amazing things to me about he and his family is that They went, um, he told us in the interview how many times they moved their kids while they were young, all over the place. And in the midst of that, they actually lost a son. They buried a son on another continent. And in the midst of that, he talks about being angry with the Lord and crying out to the Lord. And he said, in the midst of all of that, it always came back to Who is it that I serve? What is he like? Is he with me and for me? And do I see him moving in this midst? God wants to use providential circumstances in your life to mold you into the people that he's called us to be. The question is whether we will see those life-altering, cataclysmic, dynamic and changing things in our lives as something that we can allow God to use or will we get bitter and angry or self-reliant in the midst of it? Today you may be here and you may have one of those moments either in your past or currently happening or on the horizon that you know is life-altering and changing. Perhaps it's a change in your family status. Perhaps it's a change in your health. Perhaps it's something that happened in the past that you've never quite fully gotten over or understood why it happened or never been able to put in the past or deal with. And today is a day that God is looking and saying, today, bring it to me. Allow me to use it. Allow me to grow you and allow me to take it. I'll just ask you today in these moments to ask the Lord, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to learn? How do you want me to grow in the midst of this? James 1 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance 
And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for today. We're thankful that you are a God that is with us no matter what we're passing through. We're thankful for the fact that you are a God that can turn tragedy into triumph. And Lord, even as we talked about that you you allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person, we know that that's not the end of the story because you turned that into a resurrection that literally broke the power of death on the lives of those of us who believe. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would show us ways that you are using our trials, our difficulties for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.